welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Hey friends, welcome back to the School of Unlearning podcast. This is episode three with Lindsay Murphy. Lindsay and I went to high school at Morristown High School uh, about 20 years ago. I guess I'm dating both of us now. Um, And ever since then, uh, we were friends and we've stayed connected. Since high school, Lindsay's gone on to study at NYU. She's become a businesswoman with over 15 years of experience in the corporate world, ditched the corporate world, and became a creative and an entrepreneur. She's also become a speaker, a talk show host, and really overall, a force of nature. In 2019, Lindsay was added to the Portland Business Journal 40 Under 40. She's spoken at a TEDx conference. She's been invited to speak at Google and Harvard University. And Lindsay is the founder and creator of the famous YouTube series called Crazy Aunt Lindsay Show, The Fab Lab, where she encourages children and families to embrace science with DIY projects at home. This episode is chock full of gems. I remember I recorded this on the eve of a summer day here in Brooklyn, New York. And as soon as the recording was done, I rode my bike around the park and I was just sky high with empowerment and enthusiasm. I know you're going to feel the same. So tune in have fun, and share with friends. Awesome. Okay, so when I think about unlearning, um, this idea of unlearning, um, it's a really beautiful process. It's also a very sticky process. And we can't really begin with unlearning until we understand how things began for you. So one of the questions I want to figure out is, what was childhood like for you? And who are some of the more, uh, that's a big one, right? Like, what was childhood <laughs> for you? How did it shape your learnings, your beliefs? You know, how, the, how you saw the world at a young age and what kind of go from there? I suppose I have to start with the acknowledgement that I'm the seventh generation to be raised in the house that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, growing up in Marstown, New Jersey, with its deep roots in the relationship this country has to the colonial construct. I mean, literally our, our high school mascot is the Marstown colonial. colonial. Yep. Right. <laughs> you know, maroon and white, right. Maroon and white, mm-hmm. maroon and white for life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so my childhood was a soup of things, you know, I grew up in, um, you know, a, a black experience. I was, I was conditioned and raised as a, you know, engendered girl. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in, you know, the, you know, sort of bl- classic black, black Baptist Christian mindset that has its deep roots in this country, at least to the white supremacist, um, colonial technology of religion. Uh, Mm -hmm. that Christianity took on in this country. Um, Mm -hmm. And so my childhood was a lot of different things. And at the same time, I think it was maybe the same thing as everyone else. I grew up with two parents who were 25 years old, uh, 25 years apart. My father, you know, was born in the post-depression Jim Crow South in, in the 1930s and 40s. Um, you know, he was a man who experienced an incredible level of success in his personal life, but he was still a very flawed and conditioned man in, you know, a country that was not built for him. My Mm -hmm. mother, you know, is the fifth, you know, sixth generation to be raised in her hometown, um, in our home. I'm the first girl to not be pregnant by 16 in my family. Um, And so in many ways, my childhood was me realizing, you know, when I think about my childhood and the discomforts that I experienced, it was because I had a very interesting awareness of the experience that was informing my rearing without having a relationship to autonomy to change that. I didn't grow up in a household that really knew how to support 
my imagination and my natural inclination toward visioning. You know, I, I'm I'm in a deep healing relationship with my mother right now who, you know, she and I talk about this all the time. When I moved out of my parents' house, specifically my mom's, my parents uh, broke up when I was eight, nine. Um, and my dad, I mean, my, I was born and raised, you know, grew up on, on Ridgedale Avenue. My dad was over on Cleveland Avenue. So like, we're not even mm-hmm. talking about a mile. Right. And my dad was over almost every day, pissing my mom off as if they had never broken up, you know? So I grew up with basically both of, both of my parents in the house, even though they generationally were very different. And then culturally in many ways they were different because my mom was raised in the North with her own special relationship to expectation and, 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 social conditioning, whereas my dad was from a Southern construct um, with its own set of vying principles of what a woman is, what it means to be in a relationship, you know, what it means, just all of the things. And so, you know, my childhood was definitely traumatic, but I think it was traumatic because, you know, we are all raised, you know, we don't, we don't get, we get to make choices but we don't get to choose the condition we're born into. And I think I just really understood that the condition I was born into uh, pre-existed and wasn't even necessarily the choice of those who were in it, right. even though right. they were proprietors and adults and supposing to represent wisdom and all that, you know, not everyone has been given the space to really think about their choices or choose the conditions in which they operate. And so, you know, as a kid, I was extremely imaginative. I had big ideas and big dreams and I was mm-hmm. always verbally processing and I didn't come from a family that was very communicative. <laughs> right. Right. You know, my, wow. my dad, my dad, you know, I would ask my dad, tell me a story about your childhood dad. And he would literally say, you don't need to know about that. Mm. My father's childhood was so traumatic that he cannot talk about it. Mm. Um, you know, you know, mom, you know, I just, my friends through my book, uh, I'm, I'm writing a book for my kid's science show right now mm. um, and sort of struggling toward the extended deadline. Um, but, you know, my mom was not given the opportunities to have imagination. And as creative as she was, both of my parents had to sever and contain their creativity so that they could make it in the world. And so when you, yeah. when you birth a child who insists upon freedom and autonomy and discovery, they didn't have the tools to manage it, water it, participate in it. And so Mm -hmm. it meant a lot of discomfort and additional trauma because my parents were traumatized, unhealed people who were raised in a world that told them this is what's appropriate for you. And they were just doing their best to make it. And they were doing their best to make sure that their children, their children made it. Um, And I just didn't buy any of the stuff. I didn't buy the Christian conditioning. I didn't buy the poverty mentality. I didn't Mm -hmm. buy the engendered uh, specifications. I didn't buy any of it. And, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but I was always in trouble in school. Always. I do do remember. (laughs) But like, you know, I where you know, I think where some may have called me rebellious, I just didn't buy the bullshit standards uh, that I was being told was appropriate, but also never worked for me. If I do operate in these confines, I'm still unacceptable. So at a really early age, I just really went about the business of discovering what the truth was for me um, and what I wanted to be true in the world. And I don't know that I 100% did it consciously um, as I got older I certainly discovered, I certainly discovered um, that it was almost like a subconscious Mm -hmm. insistence and it became conscious. 
but I don't even think I was aware of that until maybe the last couple of years. And, you know, I'll be, I'll be right. 37 in a, in a couple, in like a week, you know, my birthday is in a few, is it basically in a few days. Hey, 37. So, I just turned it. Yeah. Ah, happy birthday. Happy, her- mm-hmm. happy birthday. Haggerty twins. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I, yeah. I feel a thank you for sharing so freely and um, so vulnerably around so many things that were traumatizing and hard for you and for your family. You know, um, I think this could go a thousand different directions, all of which would be beautiful and rich and informative for anyone who's listening. You mentioned the soup that you grew up in, you know, the, the, the cross between growing up Baptist, uh, going to a high school where literally the mascot was the colonial <laughs> Um, having, you know, uh, the black experience for sure in America, um, and then having parents who were so traumatized about their upbringing and the constructs that were given to them and, Mm -hmm. you know, their need to survive, um, you know, more or less, I think what you communicated is that it stifled their creativity, it stifled their imagination Mm -hmm. and something in you knew from a young age, like, no, like this, I don't know what the thing is that you're all trying to like avoid, but I like, no, I want to find answers. I want to live my life. And I, I think that's really beautiful. I, I think I've heard similar um, life journeys from a lot of people. And a lot of people say the same thing. Like, there's something in them that knew, like, this is not okay. And I need to figure out where I fit in this world. Because if I don't uh, express who I am, I'm not going to fit in either way. So, like, I might as well live my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so what were some of the, like, when you think about imagination and discovery and creativity, which I, I very much, like, associate with you every time I think about you and your work and growing up in high school with you what were some of the learnings that like you were told like did you try at a young age to try something around science and art discovering you were told no was there a pivotal moment where you were like no I'm going to create the thing um you know I think back to you know so my sister so my brother Jonathan and I are the youngest for both of my parents as I said my dad uh, my mother and my father are 25 years uh, apart. Um, my mom had two kids, um, one in high school, one immediately after high school. My mom was like married and on her like second marriage and second kid when she was like 19. Um, my dad, uh, you know, he had a whole family, um, you know, and adult children by the time he and my mom got together. So for both of my parents, you know, my oldest, my mom's oldest kids are six and eight years older than I am. And I think actually we might share this. I know that you, you and your sister are the last two for your family of a larger family, but you know, you have like, yeah. Um, But, you know, being the last two, um, our siblings were so much older and almost functioned like aunts and uncles in a way. Hillary, who's my mom's oldest daughter, who I refer to as my oldest sister, um, almost almost exclusively, even though she's not my oldest sister when you consider my dad's family. But um, Hillary went to college when I was 10. And on her first summer back, she had a backpack full of high fashion magazines, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar. And mm-hmm. I'd never seen these before. And I fell in love with high fashion. Mm-hmm. And at a really early age, I was like, I'm going to be the editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine. <laughs> Andre Leontal is going to be my best friend. <laughs> yep. And this is what I'm going to do. At 12, I applied to the Fashion Institute of Technology because no one told me that I couldn't. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, I, I made reference to my father. You know, my father... You know, my father died at 72, unable to recognize his name on an envelope addressed to him. My father was completely mm-hmm. illiterate and somehow managed, I mean, the, the, like the life that my father was able to create for himself with his limitations is just baffling. But growing up, my father, there were three things that I knew that were expected of me. Don't get pregnant, <laughs> go to college and this isn't so much an expectation as it was just like a, a flag. When I die, I am the last man that you will ever be able to rely on for money, period. And mm-hmm. so I grew up hearing that so much. And so when I fell in love with fashion, I'm like, I got to figure out how to go to college. My dad had never been to college. I think my mom had taken some classes at the community college, but that was the extent of it. I didn't know what the process was to get into college. And back then, teen magazines um, came with 
college applications. And I found one for the Fashion Institute of Technology. I applied. Oh my gosh. And they, e- you know, they sent me a little letter back that was like, you need a transcript and a GPA and like all the stuff that you don't have, but details, details, right. (laughs) But when you get to high school, we have a program for, for high school students, summer and Saturday classes that we would love to invite you to apply for when you get to high school. So when I was in high school, I applied when I was a freshman, I got in when I was a sophomore and all Mm -hmm. three years of high school, I was at Marston high school failing miserably because I didn't give a shit. But then also I was like, a college student in this amazing creative world and seeing what was possible. I saw outside of my small town, again, keeping in mind that I'm the seventh generation to be raised in the housework up in. So getting into New York and getting to FIT and at 15, seeing that there's so much more to the world than Morristown, New Jersey, and what happens there, um, that coupled with you know, my mom spent literally like I grew up in three places, Barnes and Noble, Joanne's Fabric and Michael's Craft Store. My my father, where he was a carpenter, he was an incredible creator. My father created amazing dishes. My father created a ama- like as a carpenter. I mean, working without blueprints, he, the house that I grew up in before my I mean, we still have the house, but like he literally built an entire house with his own hands with no blueprint, like a whole ass beautiful, like, and thinking about what my dad came from and what he literally built for himself. The only thing he didn't do in that house was the plumbing and the electricity. The, both my mother and my father had to forfeit their natural creativity in order to make it in the world. I somehow through their conditioning, even where, when they, where they didn't know it's what they were teaching, even though they didn't know that it's what they were doing, I was given the opportunity to not have to forfeit my creativity. Right. Um, And so I think about the sacrifice that my parents and my ancestors had to make so that I could exist. And I just think like, you know, I think a lot about my ancestors and I think a lot about not just my ancestors, but your ancestors, everyone, every single person that's alive in this generation and what it took for us to get here and the work that we are here to do. We are here to heal. You know, your, your podcast is about unlearning. All unlearning is to me is healing. That's all that it is. It's simply healing. It's returning to the truth. We live in a world that has been so far outside of the truth for so long and built an entire economic, religious, mm-hmm. sexual structure based on erroneous futility. And we are all here to reconcile that in our bodies, in this time. That is what Black Lives Matters is. That mm-hmm. is what all, every, everything I look at happening in the world right now, talking about justice and rectifying gender and letting people learning how to let people be what the fuck they were born to be. Right. We are healing in this generation and not just like, Oh, the baby step toward healing. I mean, complete resolution. I believe with everything in my heart that this is the generation that is permanently healing the wrongs and the woes that have gotten us to this point, what it has taken us to get here the sacrifice of our ancestors, the wrong thinking of our ancestors, all served a purpose to get us here. And we are free to unlearn. We are free to heal ourselves, which ultimately means we heal each other. So many things. So many things. Yes. I can't even, (laughs) I can't even begin. Like this should be a three hour podcast at this point. I, (laughs) What I'm gathering from your story, my friend, is that you didn't ask permission. You were 12 and you said, oh, I'm going to apply to FIT. Didn't even cross your mind to not. And then when they said, join us in high school, you waited and then you got there and you reapplied to their summer applications, right? Summer school. Like, to me, there's a persistence there that I'm sure you know and you feel and your bones speaks to the persistence of your ancestors and your parents Mm -hmm. who endured um, a lot of trauma. My first question to you um, is, do you, 
I think I know the answer to this, but how do you feel about breaking um, breaking the continuum of generational trauma it's with your work, with the, with the way that you approach the world, with the way that you make use of your, your freedom to unlearn? You, you said it's, it's, we are free to unlearn, which I think is a privilege, right? A lot of people never had the chance to unlearn mm-hmm. constructs. They literally did not have safety and uh, autonomy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Until really, kind of recently, and even then, that's kind of TBD, depending on where you live. But <laughs> which I, I know. So we're free to unlearn. Thank you. It is absolutely a privilege. Now, what do we do with that privilege? Are you are you paving the way for breaking the generational trauma of uh, someone not being able to be who they wanted to be as a young kid? Maybe your mom or who your your father mm-hmm. wanted to be. I think it's. I think it's not. It's not only is it my right. And my responsibility, but it's almost like, um, does the flower choose to bloom? Mm. Right? Does the acorn choose to become the oak tree? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, and I and I and I don't know that that makes sense, but it's like, you know, know, how does the flower feel about blooming? The flower is the fucking. It's the flower. It's a flower. It's going to bloom and. <laughs> what it was born for yeah it's what it was born for and Mm -hmm. so for me it's like how do I feel I it just is um it feels amazing to do this it also sucked for a long time I mean you know we didn't really talk about the period of time where I realized the things that were motivating me and I was totally trauma motivated as I believe most adults are Um, trauma motivated by the shit that I got as a kid, the wrong thinking and the wrong senses of self that I had to release myself from. But I got really far in my career and quit and went on this journey that brought me to religion and to all sorts of, you know, all of these things. And now that I'm on the other side of it, it's like, here was this 10 year chunk of time that I had to go through this deep healing process. And this is the thing, we talk about healing, and in the case of this podcast, I believe on learning, but we talk about healing as this beautiful, flowery, you know, yeah. comforting experience. And it's like, when I think about, you know, I had a cat who got into a, like a, like a bar fight, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he got bit on his tail, and he grew an infectious lesion. And he could, he could function for a while with that fucked up lesion. Most of us function in our trauma for a while just fine. But at a certain point, that thing becomes so stinky and so pus-filled, and you become right. paralyzed by the pain that healing has to happen, or you will die. Because the or infection- Or more trauma. Or, or that, or that, but the infection literally will get into your blood and it will literally kill you. So you have the choice. Are you going to heal from this? And healing means going to the vet and getting a laceration because the infection has to be extracted. And this, the way this lesion is situated means that I can't give you any Novocaine. I can't give you any anesthesia. I'm going to have to hold you down and cut this thing open rinse this thing out and none of this feels good. None of it looks good. None of it sounds good. Mm -mm. And you wanna fight every since every single step of the way, but it is a part of the healing process. Then when when that laceration is made and that rinsing happens and that thing is either bandaged up or left to the open air and you gotta wear that fucking cone around your neck and all you wanna do is itch, because it's healing now, but just because yeah. the, that now your body is doing the work, the work that you can't do on your own, and, mm-hmm. it, and all you can do is wait through the discomfort. Mm-hmm. You can't even fight the discomfort. You can only wait through the discomfort. And then mm-hmm. one day, the scab comes, and then the scab falls off, and then you kind of know that it's there, but then you also have to learn how to walk because You've basically been paralyzed for this whole period. So now you have to learn how to walk in your healed place. Yeah. Because how you walk when you're healed is not how you walk when you are hurt. Mm -hmm. And they are two totally different things. And it 
only, and it takes time and it takes commitment and it takes a willingness to be unfucking comfortable for a while. And then you wake up one day and you're like, oh, I'm just, oh, I'm just walking. Oh, I'm just walking. Yeah. Yeah. I made it like on the other side. I was limping before. And because I'm not limping anymore, I think something's wrong. But in fact, nothing is wrong. I'm everything is right. And now I get to learn how to sprint. Whereas before crawling was the best I could do. Right. With the pain. And so for me, that lesion to laceration to cone around the neck and itching to I'm in this moment, I am learning how to walk with a healed gait and become comfortable operating in that healing. And so I don't know, it's just like, and then learning also how to have that same, the same patience that I didn't know was required for myself to heal. I have to offer it to those who are still operating in their hurt and their pain and their shame and their guilt and their unknowing. I have to, because I was able to heal and I know what it looks and feels like, I have no choice but to be compassionate and empathetic. And I hate to even use the word patient, but patient with the healing process that others have yet to even get a quarter of the way through because mm-hmm. I had to experience it and I know what it took for me to get there. I want to back up. So I love this metaphor of the injured animal and what has to happen to them in order for them to truly unlearn and become who they're meant to be, which I believe unlearning is 100% healing. <laughs> healing is also messy and painful and really terrible sometimes. It smells like, bad. People, Ooh, child. Then they tell me if I'm wrong. I think this is why people don't want to unlearn principles, ideologies, belief yeah. systems, because they could lose their family. They could lose their friends. They could lose their job. Mm-hmm. They can lose it all because entire economic structures have to redo themselves. Yeah, totally. Right? I get why people and I've had periods of my life and I'm, there's still things I'm unlearning for sure. I'm so curious to hear what you're unlearning too these days. But it's like we, you, you know, you said something about you were successful in the corporate world. You, mm-hmm. you did that work, I want to say, for like 10 years. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So probably you know, more than that when you consider I was... <laughs> I was in a showroom at 16. True, because you were getting ahead of the game very early on, my friend. Um, You also mentioned just that most adults are trauma motivated, right? And so we are taking, again, the constructs of what we were told we needed to be as kids, what success was, um, what it looked like to be a good human being. And we got that job, whether it be corporate America or elsewhere. And we're motivated by trauma. Can you speak to just your experience with what that meant for you tactically, like going into corporate America? What were you trying to prove? What were you trying to accomplish? And what what, what would you tell yourself now, knowing what you know now to the 21-year-old Lindsay? Yeah, I mean, you know, being, you know, being born and raised in Marstown, New Jersey, which, you know, for those that don't know, you know, being what, being what I would have called the poor and being from Marstown, like no one was poor. Like there were definitely people who did not have as much as others, but like Marstown, New New Jersey is like (laughs) one of the wealthiest places in the country period. And like, not just like, Oh, these people are rich. Like, no, this is like wealth, wealth, like, (laughs) like Johnson and Johnson wealth, like literally, Casey and Jamie Johnson are from the town next door. (laughs) The great, great, great grandchildren of Johnson and Johnson. Like they literally live next door. Yeah. I Um, didn't even know that. I I got the sense when I was growing up too. I, yeah, I understand. But, but, but like being black and not rich at all, but being the poor, not poor, but the poor black person in this very wealthy, very white town, I received the feeling that I was inferior. Um, I didn't have the money. I didn't have the last name. I didn't have the skin or the hair or the eyes. Uh, And so, and everywhere I went, I felt like I needed to earn being there because it's like, why is Lindsay here? Why is the pudgy black poor girl here? So I always felt like I had to prove 
my value. So mm-hmm. how do I go about doing that? Because I don't have the inherent impressiveness of having the last name that's on the library or the trust fund or whatever it is, I know what I can do. I can be really high achieving in, in these really extraordinary ways. At 12 years old, I'm a, because, I, because my hobby is fashion and I can't be free to just have a hobby, I got to make it a profession. So now I'm going to go to FIT. Oh, now it makes sense that Lindsay is here because she's exceptional. Lindsay's 15 years old and she's in college. She's exceptional. That's why the poor Black girl is here. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I was motivated by what I felt I lacked and needing to collect, collect accolade, collect, yeah. collect a title that validates my presence. And mm-hmm. so when I got to be about 26 and I was director of business development at an ad agency <laughs> making six figures, you know, I had the German car, I had the you know, the apartment in Glen Ridge. I had the famous and rich friends and da, 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 da. And I didn't want to get out of bed most days. I felt I was so riddled with anxiety and depression. And no matter what shoes I was wearing, no matter what my hair looked like, no matter how big my pearls or my diamonds were, no matter how many times I paid my mother's mortgage, I felt inferior. And nothing could change that. No amount of money, no, nothing could change that. And I knew that at 26, with all the things that, I, that, that, that 10-year-old Lindsay, 15-year-old Lindsay imagined what success looked like, this is not what it feels like. Right. I knew right. that it felt wrong and I decided, okay, what I was motivated by caused me to collect these material things mm-hmm. and, it, and it's not it, but I know that it's possible. I then had to go about the business of decoupling the spiritual from the material because I had the material. There was something spiritual that was missing in most people. It's the spiritual that's missing. And because we live in a world that's fucked up the relationship between spiritual and religion, because religion is, religion is material. Religion is a, is a construct. Religion is, is a container. And the spirit is free of that. But boxes had to be made so that order could be established. The white supremacist patriarchy, late stage capitalism does not happen without order. And so religion came and became synonymous with spirit. And now all of it's all jacked up and nobody wants to touch any of it. Right? (laughs) Yeah. 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 And we're walking around largely devoid of spirituality and a sense of connectedness to ourselves and nature and the world around us. Yeah. Child, listen. So mm-hmm. I had to, I literally had to strip myself of the material relationship I had and go on a 10 year spiritual journey that at m- most points, I didn't even realize that's what it was. I didn't right, realize right. I was healing. I didn't realize I was unlearning. I didn't realize I was going on a spiritual journey. I just knew that this job fucking sucked. This money didn't mean shit. And I need to find the feeling that I am desperate to find, that I was desperately using material to try and, 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 and achieve. I love that. So I'm learning a couple things from what I'm learning from you and I'm absorbing from our conversation. Unlearning is messy. <laughs> unlearning, you could be on it, but you don't even know you're unlearning. Um, unlearning uh, challenges you to strip away a lot of the external uh, stuff that we've been told is important or that gives us value. Mm-hmm. Um, and what would you tell your 21 year old self? I'm trying to think where 21 year old Lindsay was. Or before you took the corporate America job, whichever age that was. Yeah, I got recruited into that, that MTV networks job at 19. Like before I left community college, I was at, I was at MTV. Um, so at 21, I was two years in and I thought my shit didn't stink because I had this like cool office at this cool company and I was about to make six figures and I was learning how to negotiate. So what I would have told my 21 year old self, honestly, like when I think about, 
Will I am. <laughs> Will I am did this Super Soul Sunday conversation with Oprah like three mm-hmm. or four years ago, maybe. Yeah. And I'm not going to be able to one-to-one verbatim articulate what he said, but it resonates so deeply. Yeah. In this conversation, he said something to the effect of, you already are. Like, your entire life experience is. It, it is and it exists, and you are just experiencing yourself toward it every day. Mm. Your future self is constantly calling to your present self Mm -hmm. into the direction Mm -hmm. that it's headed, to the healed Mm -hmm. place. It's constantly Mm -hmm. calling you. And some of us call that God. Some of us call that higher self or whatever it is. Intuition, whatever it is. But there is a completed whole self that is calling to you every minute, right? So you already know the answers. You already have it. It's already done. That version of you already is. I love it. It makes me feel so like calm hearing another person say it with such passion. And like, (laughs) I just, I feel that very strongly. So thank you for articulating that. And so when I think about 21 year old Lindsay, I sitting in this seat talking to you, Alyssa Haggerty, who I haven't spoken to in almost 20 years, who I love to pieces and have always been deeply fond of. I'm calling to 21-year-old Lindsay right now exactly where she is. And she's doing exactly the right things, Mm -hmm. even though she's operating in her lack of healing, even though she's motivated by false thinking, even though she still has yet to go on the journey of knowing that she needs to unlearn, even though 21-year-old Lindsay thinks she knows everything right now and is about to get kicked in the ass to realize that she don't know shit. So many things. (laughs) I'm calling to her in this moment right now. So what I would say to her is exactly what I'm saying to you. Mm -hmm. Go on the journey. Say yes to the journey. Open your eyes to the journey. Because at 21, Lindsay hasn't experienced... Lindsay, 21-year-old Lindsay is just excited to have $40,000 a year. 21-year-old Lindsay doesn't even realize she's being fucked. That because she's a woman or because she's Black... She's making almost half the amount of money that the man that reports to her, the person who, she, who the person that calls her boss is making $23,000 a year over her. She doesn't even know that yet. She doesn't even mm. know how deeply racism and sexism informs the money she makes. And I could tell her right now, but she, she's just happy that she has $40,000. Sure. So you're not telling her to change anything. I think that's what's most interesting is you're not saying change anything because you have to go through it. You said she has to go on the journey. She has to open her eyes to the experience, which I think is the most profound thing. A lot of people would say the opposite. They would say, oh, I would tell that person to speak up. I would tell them. To, but you know what? You're, you're just, you had to go through the, I call it like the vortex. It's like, actually, you know what? I, I was joking with a colleague the other day. I was like, you know what? This past couple of years has felt like, I don't know what birthing feels like, but it feels like I'm going through a birthing canal and this shit is painful. Like, I don't know who started this idea, but like, I feel like I've been born again in a really painful, traumatic way for the past couple of years. And, you know, and to your point, and and I think what we're alluding to is it's going to keep happening dozens of times over again in our life. You know, we, we have to go through it. So I love that. You know, because I I also think a lot about how, because believe me, I am the queen of saying, I wish someone had told me, but as, Mm -hmm. as, as 36 year old Lindsay, who's about to be 37, who has a ton of mentees. Uh, like, I, I mean, I, I'm, I have the life that I have because of mentors. I mean, the people and like the community that I had in Marstown, the community that I had in Montclair, New Jersey, the, my professional community, like I am so grateful that I had such incredible access to mentors who told me the truth every step of the way, right? Or told me their truth every step of the way. I'm so grateful. But as a, as, a, as a mentee now and thinking about myself as a kid then, people were telling me, like, oh, you don't want to date that person because these things. Like, you know what I, I think about um, yeah, yeah. sitting at the kitchen table and listening to my mother and the women in my family talk about, you know, the people that they grew up with and, you know, and here I am, you know, 
growing up with the children of the people that they're talking about, right? And I'm hearing them say things that I'm like, wow, that sounds crazy and that sounds ridiculous. Like, oh, you know, that, that, you know, the head, you know, football guy, you know, he turns into an alcoholic. (laughs) He turns into a pretty fat, you know, sloppy, you know, shitty guy who like hangs out at the, at the townie bar. In my mind, I'm hanging out with the cool jocks right now. And I'm like, everyone turns into a successful version of themselves. He's going to go and be pro someday. And then you get to be 25 and you go to your high school reunion and it's like, oh, what my mom said is what I'm literally watching and experiencing right now. And then when I get 10 years older, it's like I'm trying to tell my nieces and my nephews like, this person and what they think right now doesn't matter because they don't even know that they're limited. Right, you don't right. even know that all you know is Marstown, New Jersey. There's right. a whole world of people that you haven't met yet. This right. is going to keep happening because cycles continue. Yeah. You get to choose a totally different path. So I say all this to say, I was told. <laughs> things that I didn't know how to believe because I was a kid and didn't know better. I had to experience it. I had to witness it become true. And some things you will not learn. And it doesn't matter how many books are written. It doesn't matter how many studies happen. It doesn't matter how many parents tell you. It doesn't matter. Some things you will just have to experience. And then based on that experience, make different decisions. Most of us don't get to a point that we have purview where we realize we can make different decisions. We, most of us just continue the cycle because it's all we know and it's all that's been exampled to us. Right. So 21 year old Lindsay, I could tell her literally all the things and mm-hmm. she wouldn't believe me because she has to experience the revelation, the experiential revelation of what is true. Mm-hmm. She has to go through it. Right. Because it's all, I mean, we've all been told. We have all been told. Most of us don't get it because we're experiencing it from our limited point of view. And then for some of us, we don't get it until it's too late. Right. 21-year-old Lindsay is on the right track and on the right path. That's right right where she is in her Mm -hmm. limited thinking in her trauma informed Mm -hmm. motivations. Mm -hmm. So when you think about your childhood, which was a soup of a human experience, a spiritual experience, um, I'd like to know there's, it's, it's evident that you've been unlearning your entire life from a very young age, unconsciously, and then more recently consciously. Um, but there has been, I'm sure, a few things that you've learned at a young age from a parent, a friend, somebody you've learned through an institution that still remain true for you. It's like a, I call it a T with a capital T. So my mom used to say at a young age, never go to bed angry, you know, find a way to hug that person. And whether I always abide it by it, who knows? But that was one of the things, the older I get, the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, that is true for me, for me, my, my spiritual experience. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to go to bed angry uh, with myself or with someone else. Um, it doesn't mean I remedy it that day, but I process and I begin to think about how do I make peace with whatever's happening. So that's an example of like a truth that I was given at a very young age, a learning that I'm like, yeah, I've tested it quarter of a quarter. Like it, it helps me find peace in my life. I don't know. What are some learnings or what's one learning that you're like, yeah, I learned that at five or at 10 and it keeps showing up to be like, Someone was onto something with that. I mean, I don't, I don't know that this is necessarily um, directly the answer to this. Cause I like, it's so funny. Like, I'm like, dang, like, what is like, what are those things? Like I, what are those things? And there's kind of two things that come to mind for me. One is we have the lives we choose. We mm. have the lives we choose. And that's not to say who that we, that? who, who helped you see that or gave you those words? I think like, maybe it was my dad. It was my mom. It was my mom. It was like, it was, it was 
the experience. It was the observation. I, I, I can't yes. say that yes. it, there was this one person, but then sure. we have the lives we choose, which can get a little bit convoluted and thick and, and, and desiring sure. of, of some un- unpacking because there's so much we don't choose Right. In, yeah. in, in the act of existing, you know, we don't choose who our parents are. We don't choose what their conditioning is. We don't choose where we're raised. We don't, there's so much we don't choose for, for at least the formative years of our lives. Sure. Um, but then the other thing is the thing that my father was saying around go to college, which is just get an education. Don't get pregnant. And when I die, I am the last man that you can rely on for money. Mm. And I didn't understand what he was saying. And I don't know that my father was intending to be a feminist. <laughs> Again, being from the post-depression Jim Crow South, like, I don't know that my father would have had that. And, you know, certainly the relationship dynamic that him and my mother had would suggest otherwise. But I directly relate the idea of autonomy and my ability to be a healed woman in this world to what my father said. When Mm -hmm. you are dependent on someone, when you are dependent specifically in this construct, women for so long were disenfranchised and they had to choose male partnership. You have, you have, you have, you have to, you, you become, you, you, you become something that you may not be when your mm-hmm. life depends on someone else taking care of you financially in this material world. So what I feel like my father did was in the act of me learning how to make my own money and not see marriage as financial security and stability and I do, I, I look forward to being married someday to like my divine masculine. Like I'm so stoked for that. But mm-hmm. I learned how to not endure the fact that I have had financial security by my own volition mm-hmm. has enabled me to not have to stay in relationships which is not the case for my mom. My mom had to stay in relationships or she did not have, she wasn't able to care for herself or her children. All of the women that I observe in my lineage, and my situation is is very interestingly different because up until my great-grandmother, so my great-grandmother, my grandmother and my mother, the deed passed down the line of women, the deed to the house. So our generational wealth for the last four generations went through the female line. Wow. But that didn't change that, like my great grandmother, she was put on the deed so that my great, great, great grandfather could vote. He was a black man in New Jersey. And in 1960, she had the voter registration card. She voted on his behalf. She was, she was Native American. She came down off of Ramapo Mountain, off of the reservation. So he owned the land. Mm. But because he was black, he couldn't vote. She voted five years before black people could vote in the country. And so it was because he put her on the deed and then passed away that the female autonomy was possible. The beginning wow. stages of female autonomy were, was possible in my line. Right. So wow. just that idea of, 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 of what freedom actually is and then learning how to operate in that freedom. Yeah. My grandmother didn't know how to operate in that freedom. My mother right. didn't know how to operate in that freedom. My great grandmother didn't know how to operate in that freedom. I learned how to operate in that freedom without hating men. I have deep mm-hmm. compassion for men because mm-hmm. the world has oriented itself around the handicap of men. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the world has created a container that lets men continue to be whatever it is that, the, you know, ruling the world or whatever it is, and yeah. never having to reach true emotional depth and capacity and compassion. Yeah. Women yeah. have had to hold that space. And that's not to, and if, if you're gay, totally different story. Yeah. If you're a person of color, totally different story. But the, the, the cisgender, white, patriarchal, 
construct, the entire world has oriented itself around accommodating the limitations of that. And so for me, walking, working, moving through the world and Mm -hmm. choosing, choosing not just myself, but choosing my healing, I was able to heal because I was able to say my financial and social and political security is not tied to my husband or being chosen by a man. So I'm not going to orient myself around that. And yes, believe me, it's hard to be single. It's hard. It's, I, I, believe me, yeah. all the yeah. things. I would love mm-hmm. to be married. I'd love to have, I, I'd love all those things. Ooh, I but, love it too. <laughs> but, but the children I'm going to bring into the world, the children I'm literally helping to raise right now via my yeah. YouTube channel, they yeah. will know the truth of themselves. That would have never been possible had I not been able to heal. And I would have never been able to heal if I had not been given the tools and the conditions for my own healing, my own unlearning. Yeah. I would have never gotten there. Because believe me, I almost got married several times. Yeah. To very limited people <laughs> who are wonderful in their own ways, but are deeply limited. So I just, I just think, I, and I don't know that I can, like, I, I can put that in a, in like a, in like a soundbite, but like those You'll three things to... that my, that my father yeah. raised me with literally created the conditions for me to be able to move through the world and experience this level of freedom because it takes freedom to heal. Mm-hmm. It sounds like those words empowered you from a very young age, quite consciously. And then maybe for years on end, like it was on the background of your, your thinking and it shaped your behaviors, it shaped like what you chose to invest in, um, the job you took, the job you left. So one thing I'm thinking about is that um, you are unlearning in your journey through corporate America, being a a black woman in America, through uh, being someone who is now a transplant into Portland, although it's your home now, right? You've found new roots and new places. You know, your unlearning, as you're saying, is literally dependent upon uh, the future generations. You're doing this work so that your kids, biological, and the kids you teach one day can wake up and be like, oh, I don't have to wait till the depression at 29 or the divorce at 32. <laughs> I can I can start now and I can still go through the process. I can still have the process, but not die. Like I can, I can make it. And so I think that what I'm sensing from you is like your deep respect for your lineage and your deep reverence for our, our continuum, that we are just a part of this continuum. And, and I feel like that's what you're, you know, conveying to me as I listen to your story. So I'm curious these days, I know you've unlearned quite a bit. You're in the process of healing. Well, what's one thing that you're still unlearning? Um, one thing I'm still unlearning. Um, (laughs) it's so funny. My best friend, Leah, who's in the other, in the other room, um, we talk about this all the time. My best friend is, um, is a white woman. Um, I am a black woman and where we both received similar, similar messaging around womanhood. We also had very different experiences because of the reality of how differently the culture has conditioned you based on what you look like. Um, and so for me, one thing I'll say I'm unlearning is the ways in which it's almost like what is motivating me? Like what is motivating this response? Am I responding to this person because of my subconscious white supremacy? Mm. Am I responding this to, this way to this person because of my subconscious uh, belief of what femininity is, of what it means mm-hmm. to be feminine. If I say this this way, will it keep me from getting married or being, you know? And so it's, or am I responding to this because of my trauma and my resentment around race and around engendering? So am I responding this way to this person because they are a white man? Am, am I responding to this person because I resent how I've been conditioned to train them? So I'm doing this 
like it's almost like overcompensating response or am I gen is this a genuine response to this mm-hmm. person based on my personality and my equalness in the world mm-hmm. um am I doing this out of resentment or am I doing this because this is intrinsic and this is what's true um my best friend and I uh so Leah is all about Brene Brown Mm-hmm. And I have my own well, issues Brene. with Brene Brown. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I have my own feelings about, you know, b- like basically what Brene Brown represents to me is old Negro spiritual wisdom, but with a white face, with a white face, which makes mm-hmm. it palatable to a broader white world. And so a couple of years ago when Brene Brown was like, you know, the pastor to white women everywhere, I'm like, mm-hmm. Leah, I have been talking to you about these exact same concepts and saying the exact same things to you for years. Maya Angelou, like, like mm-hmm. Angela, like same. there's, this, there is this lineage of specifically black women yeah. and indigenous women who have been saying this, but now that we have a white face with a PhD, it's, we can, we can, we can process this. And I have deep resentment about that. And so where I don't have a problem with Brene Brown at all, what she represents is Uh something I deeply resent. So I didn't even want to hear her name. Her literal name was a trigger to me. And I mean, Leah being my best friend, like it it was like a joke. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I no longer have that feeling about Brene Brown. And I will say it's because this country has moved into a different place with Black Lives Mattering. Mm -hmm. But I no longer feel that resentment. But I had to literally sit with myself of, am I, do I have a problem with this Brene Brown person because mm-hmm. she's a white woman? No. She represents something that I resent in this world. But I mm-hmm. get to heal past that now because the world is healing. And if I hold the resentment, White women everywhere might never meet their healing, which I need them to get to so we can eradicate racism, so we can eradicate internalized sexism, so we can eradicate the sort of white supremacist cisgender Stockholm syndrome that we all Mm -hmm. have walked this world through if you are not a cisgender white man. So for me, what I'm unlearning or just becoming really aware of is, okay, now I understood what was motivating my choices and my behavior. Now that mm-hmm. I'm in this more healed place and more, more of us are coming into the process of healing from awareness, what, wh- what am I actually responding to and becoming keenly aware of those, those things? Because we still live in a world that accommodates cisgender white men. We still live in a world that values white women over women of color. Like we still live in that world that is undoing itself more and more every day. But is my resentment motivating this thing? Or is this just who Lindsay is and she's being herself and that's it? So just becoming aware of my responses, what it is that I think, why I think those things, opening it up to mo- opening that up to empathy and awareness for the contain- container that other people need and deserve so they can evolve and unlearn yeah. also. Wow. So thank you, Lindsay. I I just need to take a minute to pause and digest everything. <laughs> As you also, no, I like I'm very tactile. I have to I do this all the time. Actually in meetings I turn off my camera because I just need to like just process and like Zoom fatigue makes me feel like I have to be like stoic the whole time. But like I need to I need to feel things and say them. Um, I think what's most profound for me in this whole interview is that I, I feel my, what I'm hearing and what I'm feeling from your journey and your life story is that you're not only walking the walk of self-awareness and evolution, but you are recognizing, again, I said this before, but you have a deep sense of love, reverence, and respect for your, your um, ancestors. And what that, what they sacrificed to give you now so that you can unlearn, so that you can create a life that is dictated on your terms, which is so rare in general, but especially for a black woman and because of the constructs of this, this universe and the way that society is set up. But you also are hyper aware of your role in the continuum. And what I just heard you saying is that in the earlier years, especially like high school, college, first years in corporate America, you were motivated by 
trauma-informed, you have trauma-informed motivation, which means like to prove myself to effectively the white world, I have to do X, Y, Z and make mm-hmm. this amount of money. And then now you, you're in this space of complete um, awareness and development where you're unlearning from a place of self-awareness and consciousness. So you're asking yourself the question, from what place am I responding to my friend Leah, to this person on the street? And that um, is so admirable. And also I'm so happy for you and your spiritual journey that you're in this place of like, I can, where am I? You know, am, am I responding to Brene Brown being a white woman or am I responding to what she represents? That's just incredible. And I love uh, hearing the way that you're explaining it because it's, it's profound for, it's very radical. What I would say. I'm always concerned a girl. I'm always deeply concerned because so I'm a verbal processor. I have ADD, ADHD, and I'm also just very a wordy, like a wordy person. So I'm all and then And then I also understand that like the concepts that swim in my mind are like all over the place, but in my mind, they're all connected. And so I'm like, I never make sense. Nope. (laughs) I think you make perfect sense. Trust me. I think it's, uh, if I were to draw a beautiful timeline of our interview today, it makes perfect sense. And I, I hope I, that everyone here will follow along just well with that. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of like, I'm just processing. So I'm, I'm really deeply appreciative of, of your journey. And I, I guess you said before, I want to, my last question to you is, uh, what is your definition of unlearning? Um, you, you said healing before, but is there anything you'd add to that? Like, what is unlearning for you? Unlearning absolutely is healing, period. Um, But also what unlearning is for this generation, for this generation. And believe me, I am hyper aware of the ways in which the world is unraveling and exploding and the, the layers that make up our current existence. But if you are hearing my voice, if you are watching this right now, if you are a person who has access to the technology that is the internet and or a smartphone or some sort of device from which you can receive this, you are called to unlearn now. It is the it is what we are here to do. What is unlearning? It is our inheritance. It is our right. It is our calling. It is our purpose. It is our point. That is what unlearning is. In this generation, for us, we are the first generation that has everything we need for critical thinking, the technology of critical thinking. I talk about this all the time. Literacy as a standard is only our parents old. Before World War II, literacy was not a standard. Literacy is a technology that was introduced into our culture one parent ago. Baby boomers. And so when I think about how quickly, and I mean, just even with the ability to read, how quickly technology, what we have, coding, all of these things, we talk about how quickly things accelerate. Reading was the thing that made that possible. Critical thinking, autonomous, broad-sweeping access. It doesn't matter how poor you are almost. You have access to these things. So to me, it's like, if you are hearing my voice, you have everything you need to unlearn. And it's what this generation must do. We must do this. And it's not like, oh, Alyssa, you have to unlearn. And these are the things I think you need to unlearn. No, no, no. Yeah. It is a yeah. personal responsibility. Yeah. Unlearning is my personal responsibility because when I heal, I heal the world. When I heal, I don't pass trauma on to my children. Yep. When I heal, I don't respond to my partner or choose a partner based on wrong thinking about myself or the world. Yeah. I get to have a true, pure relationship with everything and everyone in the world that I want mm-hmm. for myself and what I want for you. Mm-hmm. So unlearning is healing. 
but it's also what we are here to do. It's why we exist. It's why our ancestors, and I don't care if your ancestor was a KKK member. I don't care if your great ancestor was a, a Nazi fucking general. I don't care who or what they were. They did all of that so you could be here and do this work freely. Mm. And you not doing the work is you choosing. Again, we have the lives we choose. Yeah. You not doing the work is you choosing more injustice, more unbalance, more devastation, more of what we all claim we don't want. So mm -hmm. you must choose your unlearning. And you have to unfortunately go through the short, bullshitty discomfort. Yeah, the, the birthing canal. It. I think we talked about it. It's a birthing canal. <laughs> Um, go through it. Go toward the light, I'm saying, Lord, please. Go, for the love of God, go through it. For the love um, of God. I also think what you're illuminating at is that, you know, it's it's an inside job. And I don't think that you or I are proposing or anybody is proposing that. It means you have to quit your job or leave the marriage or do something dramatic. It's all just internal shifting. It's this like little whisper that says, oh, Lindsay, like this isn't the right corporation for me or company. And it's this whisper, I think, that for most people, it happens in a long, slow, painful, internal whisper and conversation. Mm -hmm. And some people, yeah, it's like a traumatic event that makes them be like, boom, I got to start fresh. But for most people, it tends to be um, the subtle internal gnawing away mm -hmm. and like, this is not okay. And so mm -hmm. um, I think you spoke to that in the beginning of the conversation around like your childhood. You were like, no, I'm going to go ahead and apply to FIT. Like, I want to do that now. <laughs> and um, that's that sort of that inner knowing that has been actually passed down uh, to generate from generation to generation for you um, that mm -hmm. you listen to. So I'm happy you listen to it and I'm happy that you are doing the work you're doing in the world. And most importantly, I'm happy in the way in which you do the work that you do in the world with such curiosity and awareness. Cause um, it's, it's what makes your work and, and you just such a, a special gift to this planet. So thanks girl. Wow, what an incredible interview with our friend Lindsay Murphy. You see what I mean, right? She's a complete force of nature. Here are a few things that stood out to me from what Lindsay so generously shared today. When she said, we have the lives we choose, my jaw dropped and I remembered, she's right. It's both empowering and grounding at the same time. I also really loved and appreciated Lindsay's definition of unlearning. I had never thought that unlearning is really a form of healing. And lastly, what I appreciate about Lindsay so much is that she has a keen sense of awareness of her role in the continuum of humanity to honor uh, her ancestors and to do the best she can to get as much of her creativity and voice out there in the world so she can set up the future generations for success. Please uh, tag, repost and share this episode with Lindsay Murphy. Lindsay's voice, Lindsay's insight and what she brings to this earth is definitely meant to be shared. So um, thank you for listening, friends, and uh, stay tuned for the next episode. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone. <laughs>